Welcome to the Vet Podcast with Brendan and Mark. It is the week ending January the 5th, 2018. Welcome to 2018. Hopefully all of you had a safe and happy New Year's Day. Um, I'm still recovering, Mark, a little bit from New Year's Day, but all good. I went back to work this morning um, for a half day. I think um, we were talking off air. You went back a little bit longer than the half day that I worked today. Um poor you um but um that's life sometimes it'll catch up with me later on in the week mark when i have to work um flat out on thursday and friday because by the look of things it will be busy later this week um for our contact details vetgurus.com and don't forget to send us an email say hello vetgurus at gmail.com and we're still waiting mark for that one (laughs) that one Patron, Brendan, Brendan um, do, do you think that? Um, I've had a bit of a think about this. I think, um, you know, when a group of people are standing around something waiting for it to happen and no one will be the first one, I think you should be our first patron. I think one person goes in and does it, there'll be a landslide following. So I pay myself... Um, to support myself. Is that what, is that what we're talking about? And me. I don't know how that, that, yeah. Ah, now I understand what you're saying, Mark. You want some money off me. There we go. Yeah. Um, I think you owe me a you owe me a dinner at least for what happened over the um Christmas break when you came down here. Yeah. Um yeah, we no. I'm not going to jump in, and you shouldn't either. We, we one day, one of our um, listeners, a subscriber, hopefully, will will decide to support us and go to patreon.com, vet gurus, and um, throw us a bone and send us um, maybe a dollar a month or a little bit more to help um, fund our podcast. But enough of that. Um, we want people to listen, regardless of whether we get any. Um, compensation to help pay for things um so i think mark well um how was your first day um back at work was it today your first day back at work and and um we're recording this on what is the date today mark we're recording this a little bit early it's the second of january um it's probably first of january in um, um lots of places in the world because we're pretty, we're, Australia's ahead of a lot of people, aren't they? So, same with New Zealand um, with, with the time zone. So it, it may still be New Year's Day in, in some areas of the world. Yeah, um, we usually record it a little bit later or, or cert- and certainly post a lot later. But, yeah, um, so were you back to work today, Mark? It, was, it wasn't my first day back, but it did feel a lot like it, particularly after the um, you know the New Year's Eve uh, extra couple of days off. Um, and yeah, it was it just one. You we were talking off air, and I was just saying how it was one of those days that um, never seemed to rise to any heights, and just seemed to present one problem after another that didn't have a solution. But that's okay because um, I've got a good team helping me and uh, and we did get uh, a whole bunch of things done and um, and tomorrow is a new day. That's right. And speaking of new days, um, tell me about brain surgery in um, a first seal, Mark, the, um, the news item that you want to tell me about. <laughs> um, the brain surgery, this one struck me because one of my um, – Areas of interest is that grey area um, in, 
I've got this turn of phrase that I often use with clients where I say words to the effect that just because we can do something doesn't always mean we should. Um, and so I, I do have a bit of a, uh, uh, you know, I, I, I know this one you referred to me, but I um, have a bit of an interest in these um, uh, unusual surgeries. And so this one was reported in our uh, our Science Daily, um, and it's a record of veterinary surgeons performing um, brain surgery on a fur seal to treat hydrocephalus. Um, so Ziggy, the fur seal um, from Mystic Aquarium, um, which is in, uh, where is it, um, Mystic, Connecticut. Connecticut. Yep. Great name for a place. Um, Mystic, uh, Connecticut. Uh, Ziggy was an adult female who came from the wild and has had neurological problems for a while. These were uh, increasingly worked up until uh, she was diagnosed with uh, hydrocephaly. And, um, and then a team was put together um, uh, neurosurgeons from um, Tufts Veterinary Medicine School, um, uh, um, some additional uh, anaesthetic support because, uh, as we all know, the diving reflex in pinnipeds means that um, anaesthesia in these species is particularly difficult and uh, obviously brain surgery requires anaesthetic of the highest control and order um, and uh, there I think there was also uh, um, oh, um, one of the um, private hospitals uh, was it private small no the team from one of the other teams from um, Cummings Veterinary Medical Center at Tufts University um, and so in November last year um, they undertook a surgical procedure to place a stent um, so that uh, the fluid could be drained from her brain um, down through the stent along her neck and into her uh, peritoneum. Um, and by all accounts, the, um, the surgical procedure was an immense success. Um, and uh, at this stage, uh, she's recovering very well. Um, and uh, she's eating fish once again. Um, and uh, and and at this stage, they expect her quality of life to improve dramatically. So, the the interesting thing for me in this one is the collaboration. I think one of the big arguments for doing these procedures um, in animals like uh, Ziggy um, is that because I think there is an argument to say that um, you know it's a huge expense it's a huge um, uh, um, commitment of resources and um, and it quite possibly could might not have been successful um, and uh, and I think the the real positive thing to come out of it not be not only um, I'm not trying to downplay Ziggy's well-being or success or extended quality life but I think um, the the uh, collegial manner in which a number of uh, veterinary professionals can get together, work with the team at the uh, Marine Aquarium um, and affect something like this. Um, that collaboration always invariably um, brings new things to each member of the team and uh, makes their, um, you know, their future work that much better. Um, 
It's, uh, and I quote here from uh, Foster Hospital's medical director, Virginia Rentko, um, who says, it's exciting to see our team translate their skill and experience in the treatment of such a unique patient. Taking on these challenging cases is an essential part of advancing veterinary medicine. And I think that's entirely true, Brendan. Well, well, I don't know what to say. I don't think I've done much uh, neurosurgery myself um, on any <laughs> animal at all, but I agree with you totally with the collaboration. Um, and I do and have seen um, how well it can work um, in the zoo situations, um, especially with species like the great apes, for instance, where um, they get some of the human anaesthetist in um, to help out with the anaesthetics for, um, when they're doing surgeries on some of these great apes and um, cardiologists, etc., because they um, obviously share a lot with um, humans as far as anatomy go, and it and it's amazing to watch some of these um, some of these human um, medico specialists work. Um, and yeah, I think vets and medicos should and will be bouncing off each other a lot, a lot more in the future. Because traditionally, I think both vets uh, vets um, tend not to want to get some of these specialists from the other fields in, um, and they should, um, and they should, um, and um, vice versa, I suppose, um, with with the human um, medicos asking for help um, with some of our veterinary colleagues that are out there. So I think that's the reason why I wanted um, why I flagged this particular um, one, rather than the fact we were doing um, they were doing brain surgery. It sounded like pretty amazing. Um, surgery um, that they did there and, and by all accounts as you mentioned it was successful there. Um, I don't think there were any pictures in there. It would have been good if they had a couple of pictures of the actual surgical procedure um, as well. So yeah, so that was um, news item number one. Um, I'm jumping to a, a slightly um, um, a slightly um, lighter topic um, with news item number two and and that is from or it is from the mother nature network and it's another it's another little article that came over the christmas new year period um, during that time when they like to put some um, um, funny stories or something you can read while you're sitting outside um, having a um, having a drink um, a new species of spider has been found living along the coast of queensland australia where it relies on some impressive adaptions to survive between the tides and the spider roams during low tide hunting small prey amid the surf when high tide arrives it creates an air chamber out of silk and hunkers down in a barnacle cell shell coral or kelp until the water recedes again so it is an intertidal spider and it's a truly marine species that has been discovered um, says researchers from the queensland museum and the university of hamburg who published their findings in the journal of evolutionary systematics and this is the bit that I enjoyed. They named the species De Desus Bob Marley <laughs> after the legendary musician Bob Marley, whose song, and this is this is why they why they named it after Bob Marley, whose song "High Tide or Low Tide" inspired us. They write as it lives in a high tide, low tide habitat. Well, I think they'd been 
smoking a little bit too much <laughs> wacky tobacco when they decided what are we going to call this little spider here. Um, so the spider doesn't flee the intertidal zone when it when high tide arrives. Instead, it we- weaves a silk-sealed air chamber where it can hide, and when the tide goes down, it hurries back out to hunt small invertebrates before the ocean forces it to take another break. So pretty amazing little spider, and there are actually some pictures here. I always like pictures um, in there. Um and going down to the bottom of this little article, there's a couple of interesting things. They've got a link to Bob Marley's um, High Tide or Low Tide original um, so, um, song. Um, so you can click on that to um, listen to the song. I won't play it here because of potential copyright issues. Okay. Um, but they do um, – um, here's the final two-paragraph um, quote, um, which made me laugh. Uh, um, As for the namesake of their newly identified marine spider, the researchers offer this explanation. Reggae legend Bob Marley certainly had a different background but shared with Dietrich and other explorers some character traits. Adventurous and resilient at heart, he liberated himself and his peers from poverty and hopelessness, they write. He took to music, not nature, but left traces throughout songs that teach optimism and independence of the mind rather than hate and passive endurance. The song High Tide or Low Tide promotes love and friendship throughout all all struggles of life. Well, they've definitely been smoking a bit of Bob Marley's <laughs> wacky tobacco, I think, Mark, but um, quite a fun little news story then. Um, an intertidal little friend. So um, there we go. Um, the next news story is, well, moving on from, from spiders, um, we're going to jump up to, um, well, this one is, is something you have a particular interest with, Mark, I think, and um, um, I think we're going to hear a bit of passion in your voice about this new story. What is it? Well, it's the bird spikes in trees in um, Bristol in uh, England. Um, there's there's a number of um, articles online and there's some pretty cool photos associated with some of those, but essentially the core of the story is that um, a group of relatively uh, well-off um, uh, um, car owners decided that they uh, they would no longer allow their automobiles to be um, stained, shall we say, uh, by um, by birds that were resting in the overhead trees, and they've climbed up into the trees and placed um, almost uh, almost um, in Christmas decoration style fashion, um, those plastic spikes that um, discourage birds from perching on, you know, important architectural structures. But while I, you know, um, you know what a bird lover I am, Um, uh, while I completely understand while there's some locations where birds need to be um, discouraged from roosting for health reasons or um, even... uh, um, even at the potential to damage the structure they're resting on. Um, this seems to me to be, uh, you know, I like to like to park my car under a tree. I like the benefits of nature, but um, I just want the benefits I want and I don't want to have to deal with the bits that are a bit inconvenient. Um, and anyway, I was very pleased to see that the, the, uh, the whole event went fairly, what's the word the young people use, viral, um, and there was a fairly heavy rain of disrespect coming down on the 
the uh, Hillcrest Estate Management Team, which installed the spikes on behalf of luxury car-owning residents. Um, uh, even though they still tried to defend their action, um, it was pretty clear that, by and large, most people thought they were, um, well, to put it um, bluntly, wrong. And uh, very pleasingly, the end outcome was um, the 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 whole shaming the internet shaming um, uh, encouraged the uh, Hillcrest Estate Management team under the influence of local authorities to uh, um, remove the spikes and allow the birds to return to the trees. And looking at some of the uh, Twitter tweets, um, they were quite quite amusing, weren't they, Mark? Um, one of them that um, I'm just looking at here. This is quite possibly the most idiotic thing I've ever seen this year. Bird spikes on a tree, truly bonkers. <laughs> so um, yeah, it was quite. It um, um, was a quite a um, yeah. What would you call it um, when there's a whole I should know this when there's a, a large number of Twitter, um, um, an avalanche of tweets, I suppose, is what we'd say. It's yeah, a tweet what, storm. A tweet storm, yes. Um, which um, social media, yeah, we've always got to look at the social media aspects of um, all these sort of items, don't we, these days, because it does make a big difference. So, yeah, it, this story reminds me a, a lot about um, um, what we occasionally see um with um, with possums as well, we, um, um, in, in Melbourne, um, and and the whole aspect of 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 or the concept of living with wildlife. Um, so we have people phoning up local councils saying, um, "Can you please get rid of this problem possum? Because I get home from work, I park my car, and I walk walk up my steps um, towards my house, and I step on possum poo." or the possum has eaten my prize roses, um, do something about it, get rid of the possum. And they'll re literally ring up their local council and complain um, and say, get rid of this problem possum. Um, so it's getting across the whole message of living with wildlife, isn't it? And if they don't want to step in possum poo, well, they should go and move somewhere else, move into an inner city apartment, for instance, and um, perhaps they won't be stepping on possum poo there. Well, it reminds me of our, the local story that uh, springs to mind for us is um, that there are a number of towns and uh, villages through the Hunter Valley that have relatively um, large uh um, colonies of uh, flying foxes, and um, and there's no doubt in the world that um, there there are a few things as um, as uh, inflammatory to local residents in a country town as having one of their parks fenced off because they they're, they're uh, the um, the flying foxes have decided to set up camp in the trees, um, and 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 it, it does frustrate me that um, I do understand that there are some um, odors that might not be very pleasant um, when you're in co close proximity to one of those um, bivouacs the bats set up, but um, they're so fundamental to the bush that we all love, and they're so critical to um, fertilizing the plants and um, and uh, providing um, through the fertilization of those plants food and structure for the rest of our ecosystems. That um, it, it is frustrating that people want to be 
in the country, in with the bush, experience the bush, but only the bits that they want. I just wish they would um, take it all and appreciate it all and love it all like we do. <laughs> oh, what more can I say? <laughs> I told you, um, listeners, that might will get very passionate about that particular story, so there we go. Just um, climbing down off my uh, soapbox right now. Um, The next and final news story before we get stuck into our um, topic of the week is starfish make a remarkable comeback years after a deadly disease outbreak. And this was, well, here we go again, another one for the Mother Nature Network. I've been stealing stuff on them. But we, um, well, it's not stealing stealing because we refer, we link back to them in our show notes, don't we? Um, Four years after the sea star wasting syndrome nearly wiped out the starfish population along the United States' west coast, the starfish, also known as sea stars, is making a comeback. Recently, marine scientists in Southern California discovered millions of starfish in tidal pools after not finding any for years. It's a huge difference, aquarist uh, Daryl Deleski told the Orange County Register a couple of years ago, you wouldn't find any. I dove all the way along as far as Canada, specifically looking for sea stars and found not a single one. Well, he's got more time on his hand than he knows what to do with. Um, what caused a starfish to die? Um, according to the article, in 2013, millions of starfish from Alaska down through California were struck by a mysterious deadly disease that caused them to lose limbs or quoting from the article, completely dissolve into white gelatinous goo. Um, The wasting syndrome struck at least 10 species of starfish and its exact cause was unknown, according to the University of Santa Cruz. Um, A similar wasting syndrome has been observed on the east coast of the USA where it was linked to a virus um, which followed a period of starfish overpopulation. On the West Coast, however, the only observed factor for the starfish wasting syndrome was warmer than usual waters, Mark, something you might be interested in hearing, um, which could conceivably create a breeding ground for dangerous bacteria. Um, So, yeah, whatever the cause of the wasting syndrome, the effects were dramatic. The starfish first developed lesions that quickly expanded and then they began to lose limbs um, that dissolved and as many as 95% of the starfish population died off in some affected region. Um, so good news is, um, and there's a if you click on the link at our um, website, vetgurus.com, there's a video um, that demonstrates the effect of the wasting syndrome uh, on one of the um, islands there. Um, in the first half of the video, the ocean floor is almost completely covered with the starfish, and, and in the second half of the video, um, shot just a few months later, they've all disappeared um, but the good news is, um, yeah, that they, they, they've come back. So, yeah, they don't quite know what the effect was. But, I, you know, um, reading between the lines, I think what they're sort of hinting at there is it's an, um, an environmental sort of um, um, conditions that have caused it and that starfish are maybe a bit of a, a canary in a coal mine or a, or a starfish in an ocean um, as far as um, indicating what might be happening um, to the oceans with the with the um, possibly the global warming having an impact. Yeah, what do you think of that story, Mark? Well, I think you're right on the money. I think um, it is quite likely that um, that uh, um, changing you know pollution, changing water temperatures, the um, the likely 
dramatic effect of uh, currents and flow, um, particularly in places like that uh, coast of America and down our east coast as well, is likely to see um, uh, many of these episodes over the next few years. Um, and, and yeah, it's a bit depressing all around. I, I, I was hoping we'd end on a much um, uh, brighter note, but um, I suppose the bright spot is that... Um, that uh, the the resurgence of the echinoderms um, is uh, is testimony to the resilience, I suppose, the insults that we provide our environment and um, animals therein ends up. Um, uh, in many instances, um, they're able to bounce back if they're given a little bit of a break. So I suppose we've got to be hopeful that um, when. Uh, when our effects are minimised, when whatever happens that um, stops us down the path we're going at the moment, um, the, the the remaining uh, ecosystem of the world will hopefully um, bounce back to its um, full glory and these starfish are just the start. Well, if and if I was depressed, I won't be in in um, shortly because you are going to talk about a product that might um, help with our um, anxiety-based disorders, Mark. So, what is the product review you will talk to our listeners about? Well, I was pretty keen to talk to our listeners about um, trazodone, Brendan. Um, I first was introduced to trazodone at a practice management um, conference where um, the speaker was. Um, it was probably about three years ago. They were, and they, there was an American um, keynote speaker, and they talked in glowing terms about the way that um, uh, managing the behaviour of animals who come to the veterinary hospital was a uh, was a practice builder, um, and um, and you know. I immediately came back from the conference, went searching for the, the magic drug in question, and uh, promptly discovered that we didn't have it in Australia. Um, but over the last couple of years, I know that it's now become available um, in a compounded form, and uh, and so we have been able to prescribe it for a number of our clients, um, and I thought I would give you a bit of an idea of how well it was going. Um, the, uh, the the first thing I'd quickly say is that I don't know, I'm not aware of the, the um, rules in Victoria, Brendan, but um, one of the awkward things about trazodone, one of the negatives about using it from our point of view is that um, being a compounded medicine in New South Wales means that we can't keep stocks on hand. We have to prescribe compounded medications specifically for individual patients. And so it's not like we can keep trazodone on the shelf and uh, and flick it out to um, cases that we think need it, um, we actually have to um, prescribe it. Now, that's not uh, a horrendous thing because most of the compounding pharmacies these days are pretty pretty gun uh, pretty good at getting those medications out there within 24 or 48 hours but it just adds another level of complexity to prescription um, that sometimes makes it a bit of a negative rather than us just supplying the medication so we've been using it since the middle of November um, we've been using it particularly our target at the moment um, our target up till Christmas um, was those patients who uh, were very anxious about coming to the hospital. Um, and so we were uh, prescribing trazodone to particularly dog clients whose uh, dogs were would freak out when they came to the hospital. 
And we um, combined the prescription with um, a little bit of scheduling hard work, trying to make sure that the dogs came in at a time when there weren't uh, other dogs, usually the most common reason that the dogs got upset, um, and trying to make sure, you know, um, one of my faults in life is that um, Brendan will attest that I often keep people waiting and um, and we work really hard to make sure that doesn't happen to these dogs. Um, and I feel very confident in saying that some of our uh, most difficult patients um, uh, showed clear signs that they were not nearly as anxious about coming to the veterinary hospital. Um, it certainly wasn't like a, you know, a magic flick switch which turned them from um, anxious dogs into um, completely relaxed dogs, but it certainly took us more than just a little bit of an edge off their uh, level of anxiety. I was um, uh, actually patting one of the cattle dogs that we've made that prescription for today um, and um, and previously this dog we would plan to it would it would wet itself and pull its collar off and um, and not necessarily get um, bitey but just you could not um, do anything pretty much to the dog and today um, um, I was very pleased to be able to um, Give uh, um, uh, give him a big cuddle and and uh, get down on the floor with him and not have him um, do a big fear wee all over the place. So um, he's a classic example of um, of the cases where it works pretty well. The other thing that we've used it for is um, uh, particularly over Christmas. We have um, a number of uh, dogs who are on various. Um, anxiety relieving medications to get themselves through the thunderstorms and fireworks that seem to uh, be particularly common over these few weeks of summer and um and similarly i think um you know our general tactic is to have a background medication on board and then a episode medication at particular times when the owners can predict what's going to happen um and uh but the cases we've used um uh Trazodone in, we almost, I think, I'll, I may stand corrected, but I don't think we've had a background drug in place. Um, and the owners have just used Trazodone uh, at the time of an episode. Um, and same deal, I think we can um, say that uh, almost every dog that we've given it to for thunderstorm and firework phobias has um, been better off for having the medication on board. Um, it seems to be a little bit more. Uh, predictable. It's certainly not as sedating as the benzodiazepines, which are our usual go-to um, medications for episodes of loud noises leading to anxiety. Um, and so I think I would be very happy to um, to recommend Trazodone as a um, medication that, um, that we can add to our arsenal to treat anxious dogs, Brendan. I think you've answered the question I was going to ask you, but I'll ask a similar question. Um, I, I have dispensed it um, mostly or, or, or solely for um, dogs that um, have those thunderstorm or, or firework phobias. Um, so you've, you've um, 
opened up a whole new area of um, something I need to look at for these dogs that um, are, are anxious and don't like the vet visit. So my question is, with these ones that you are um, deciding that we will uh, place it on Trazodone um, in order to make the vet clinic um, visit a, a, a more enjoyable experience or tolerable for the for the dog, um, at what point are you deciding that? I presume you're seeing the dog first in some some in a consultation first, and then deciding this dog's a, a train wreck and it needs something next time it comes in. Um, have um, because I'm presuming that you, you you you're not dispensing anything without seeing that particular animal. Oh. Um, so it's a bit of a catch catch twenty two, obviously. Um, and and secondly. Um, how um, those dogs that you do dispense it for that, are you just dispensing it for that one vet visit or is there a temptation to then dispense it for that animal longer term for for retraining and behavioural retraining for that individual um, or or you do a bit of both? Um, a bit of both. I think the, the, the answer to the first question is that um, we do get to see a lot of dogs that are really anxious and we're pretty lucky that we can um, take some time and and generally those things I was talking about, my wonderful staff are already doing them scheduling so those dogs have a bit of a free run and um, so we're already aware that those dogs are around and once we decided to use Trazodone, um, we had a group of half a dozen dogs we you know automatically called up the owners and said look next time that uh, buster is coming in we are pretty keen to trial this would you be on board because we'll send the script off today if that's the case um and and uh, we've been able to get um all those dogs onto it and um and but you're exactly right the temptation uh, with a successful medication like that where uh, because almost all those dogs are going to be anxious in other situations as well um, and almost all the ones we've had, uh, the owners have started to use them in other circumstances as well. So um, what would be an example of that for one of these dogs that um, you and the owners end up deciding to to use it um, longer term, are they are they giving that daily? Are they only giving it during a during a, a training session? Um, the majority of them, the the ones that leap to mind at the moment, uh, they end up giving it um, pretty much. The sort of thing that um, I'm thinking of is uh, we have a couple of dogs who get anxious coming to the vets, but are also difficult to handle um, around. Other dogs, maybe on a walk, they will like to go for walks on uh, maybe some of the up here around our Lake Macquarie. We have wonderful walkway um, that's frequented by many people with dogs on leads. Um, and so some of these dogs literally can't go to those dog-friendly places because um, their owners find it difficult to keep them calm and, and make them enjoy it. But um, so th- those dogs will get a dose before they go to those places and um, and it in, it increases the number of um, uh, places that the owners can take their dog and also just increases I think the you know the positive experience one of the things about I suppose walking a dog about the companionship of a dog is that 
there is a lot of emotion charged into that experience. And when it goes well, it's a real uplifting experience. Um, but when it goes badly, it really can bring some people down. And so, um, so facilitating that, um, that uh, experience, the Act added interaction with other animals where uh, the dogs are not distressed. Um, it seems to be a real, um, first of all, improves the quality of the life of the dogs and the owners in turn and is, is a bit of a practice builder. So I don't see any negatives with it in that way, Brendan. Well, I better start um, dispensing it and thinking about using it in my clinic more often to help these doggies that are an anxious here. So Thank you, Mark. I've learned something. I've learned something. I learn something every single time I talk to you. Um, um, some of it um, we can't talk on air, but um, I do learn something every single time. So thank you for that. Um, our main topic this week is, well, here you go. You will educate me again, Mark. Um, it is a topic you have chosen. And what is that topic? Well, we've... we've um Spent a fair bit of our first. Um, I mean, this is our twelfth episode. Am I right? In um, and during that episode uh, twelve, yep. yeah, yeah. Um, in that time, we've really, as is our want, focused on the unusual and exotic pets, the avian pets, um, a fair bit of our wildlife interest. Um, and I thought the time has come to just get, you know, absolutely um, down in the. Uh, in the uh, everyday common thing that vets are uh, seeing all the time, um, and I thought we'd have a big long talk about uh, anal sacs and uh, the problems they cause our canine companions. Anal sac disease or syndrome? Okay, Mark. Yes. Um, so, where do you want to start? Um, what's well? I, I can do an interview on you. Here we go. This um, uh, you dropped one of them on me a few episodes ago. So, question number one: What are the most common um, uh, breeds that you see um, anal anal gland issues with? Well, there's one that stands head and shoulders above the rest, and that's the Cavalier King Charles Spaniel. Um, and I think I think it's my theory that um, these dogs have. Uh, been bred with an anatomic weakness in their anal sphincter, and I think they uh, <laughs> they, are, they are unable to um, to completely empty out the the um, the anal sac, and so they constantly have a residual um, you know deposit in the the uh, anal sac, which um, over time um, can become um, problematic and lead to. Uh, you know, the usual spectrum of problems, impaction, um, sacculitis, inflammation, um, and even sac rupture. I've got it just to expand on my bit of a theory. I'm interested in what you think about this. Um, I reckon that um, that some dogs, and uh, cavies are probably the best example, they have what I think of as a blowout. So the anal sphincter is a ring-like um, uh, muscle around the anus and the anal sac is contained within that muscle. But I think some of these dogs develop a, um, uh, you know, a, a laxity in that muscle such that a little part of the anal sac pokes out like a blowout in a tyre um, and that makes it impossible for it to ever empty out completely. Um, 
anal sac blowouts, Mark. Gee, you're, <laughs> you're making my day here. And and I'll tell you what, if I went to my GP and he said to me, you have an anatomical weakness in your anal sphincter, I would um, need to take a bit of trazodone. <laughs> so... <laughs> Continue on, Mark. Well, um, the uh, obviously the other breeds that we see commonly are the ones that have uh, a, a, um, a weak perineal diaphragm. The uh, dogs, um, maybe the um, uh, bulldogs, the British bulldogs, the Australian bulldogs derive from them. Um, they uh, regularly have problems with uh, um, the strength of their perineal diaphragm, um, and. Um, and uh, as a consequence, I think that plays a role in the development of anal sac disease. The other breeds that we see it in commonly are the ones that have problems with atopy. Um, so I, once again, I'm going to return to one of my theories, and I'll be very pleased for anyone, any one of our listeners, to um, to to drop us a line on our um, our Gmail address um, and and uh, dis dispossess me of. Um, of uh, these strong-held beliefs. Um, but I think that um, a lot of the dogs that uh, have atopy will develop a complex of problems associated with having an itchy perineum, um, which involves um, uh, dermatitis, which involves um, trauma as they scoot and scratch. And sometimes it's difficult to know which is cause and which is effect when it uh, when you have a dog that's um, scooting along on the carpet um, and inevitably they end up with anal sac disease. But I think um, I don't know whether that's always the primary cause or whether it's sometimes the result of atopy influencing the the um, immunity in that area of the body. But, uh- Getting back to our Cavalier King Charles, the interesting thing there is, yeah, I would have put them number one um, as well as far as the, the breeds that we see with the um, with anal sac conditions. Um, and in, um, funnily enough, um, the picture for um, this podcast that I just um, searched um, before we even um, started recording is a Cavalier um, that, I, that I picked out because I thought, gee, we see a lot of Cavaliers with um, anal sac um, conditions. So, I'd agree totally um, with 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 that as far as the most common species that we see. Um, so, my next question is: um, What is your management of the classic um, blocked anal gland, um, chronically um, blocked anal gland um, dog? Well, <laughs> um, uh, the and let's 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 summarise it. Um, so to be a, a, a short and su- short and sweet, Mark, a, a three minute um, summary of your, your medical treatment. Once there's there's, okay. there's three steps. The first one is um, gentle expression, um, and uh, and as long as the clients and the dog are happy for that to persist, um, I emphasise the the gentleness. I think sometimes um, the vigour with which some veterinarians. Um, uh, Express the contents of the anal sac perpetuates the disease. So um, I think um, my, I've, that's my argument. At least at work for encouraging the um, f- my female co-workers to um, 
because they have much uh, longer and thinner fingers um, uh, and therefore can be more gentle in that area, I think it's almost uh, imperative that they do this procedure. Uh, but gentle expression is the first. The second one is that um, if we've been ticking over for a while, and particularly if the dog's very uncomfortable, we will um, give the dog some sedation and uh and then using saline and a soft catheter, we will flush the anal sac, emptying out everything we possibly can. Um, and then we'll instill um, one of the cortisone-containing creams into the anal sac. Um, I often just use Neocort these days. Um, and that has the um, effect of decreasing the inflammation um, and giving the dog a bit of a break with the local anaesthetic effects. And... Um, and there's a little residue of neomycin in there to decrease any bacterial infection. If we get a recurrence after that, then we're looking at um, at surgery. I think um, early in my veterinary career, I was a bit reticent to um, uh, to get these out. Uh, my first boss put the fear of um, of well, the fear of failure in my head because he suggested that every dog he'd ever done ended up uh, fecally incontinent. Um, but um, before you it. jump to that, Mark, um, just let me before you jump to the surgery. Um, um, I think um, chatting chatting to other vets about their medical treatments. I think there's a huge range of variation about what people do, apart from obviously physically expressing the sex. Um, I personally also. Um, um, uh, I do not infuse the sacs um, for those chronic ones. Um, it, it, it's something that I need to start thinking about doing, listening to you there. I think it's a great idea um, for those ones that we don't take to the full surgical removal of them to, to sedate them and just infuse something like a, the neocortisone um, product in there. Um, I do um, routinely, depending on how sore they are and how inflamed I think the glands are or thickened um, those anal glands are, um, I'd, I'd, I'd tend to put them on a non-steroidal um, anti-inflammatory plus or minus um, antibiotics as well. But I do think sometimes I'm probably covering them with antibiotics um, systemically where maybe I shouldn't be doing that. Um, so my next question to you would be, do you do you also put these animals on um, pain relief or, or some form of non-steroidal um, systemically? And what are your thoughts on um, systemic antibiosis for them? Um, good questions. And you know my absolute passion for making sure that um, all our patients are pain-free. And so um, I do uh, um, employ, depending on the patient, um, I'm, I certainly wouldn't hesitate to use um, a short course of corticosteroids in these cases. Um, and not surprisingly, given the relationship with Adipi, I think that um, sometimes that's the best uh, of the anti-inflammatory drugs to use, but um, we definitely use it because it hurts and because the failure to empty the um, the rectum routinely um, allows time for bacteria to build up and um, multiply and cause more problems. Um, if they're pain-free and go as soon as they need to, then it's much more likely they'll um, uh, develop a normal process in the Anal sac. So yes, um, um, non-steroidals are our friend here. I'm a bit more guarded about using antibiotics. There are definitely um, cases where uh, these are um, infectious processes, and the infectious process extends beyond the um, the um, 
interior of the sac. I think there's often infected material in the um, in the oils within the sac, but I don't think um, antibiotics actually do anything to those. And so I really try and pick the cases where there might be some inflammation about the um, anal sac that might indicate that we have a anal sacculitis that extends to the the uh, um, surrounding tissue. Yes, um, the I agree totally. I mean, the ones that I did, probably, hopefully, ninety five percent plus of the ones that I um, place on systemic antibiotics would be um, anal gland abscesses. Um, so ones that have ruptured and not just a classic impaction um, that's going on there. I certainly don't put the impacted ones where there's no signs of um, any bloody discharge when I'm I'm I'm, I'm squeezing those um, expressing gently um, those anal glands um, that we. Um, I don't put them on antibiotics at all. Um, so as I rudely interrupted you, um, so your, your thoughts, um, a, a brief, again, because we're getting towards the end of our allocated um, time here, <laughs> um, your brief so- um, comments on the surgical um, aspects of it. Um, do you take that take them to surgery? Um, let, let's do a case example. Um, we have a dog that has, has a maf- massively enlarged anal gland that has in- ruptured and um, it's this whole festering, painful, enlarged um, cellulitis um, surrounding it, mess um, in the backside of that um, that dog. What's your uh, approach to that? Do you jump in there, knock them out, take them to surgery? What do we do? Um, and 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 yeah, if if in, if if you um, it'll be good if you cover your surgical um, um, comments that um, you were going to mention before I inter- interrupted you. Um, well, I think uh, I do have a tendency these days to, um, to um, assume, particularly if we've got those ruptured anal sacs, um, then I don't just depend on antibiotics and pain relief. I do like to go in and, um, and uh, give them a generous flush and, um, and uh, debride any dead tissue. There's often... Um, uh, connective tissue, uh, dead tissue around those ruptured uh, sacs. I do not try at that time to excise the secretory material from the secretory lining of the anal sac. I think it's sort of exploded um, and I think it's, um, it's almost impossible once you start cutting into it, you're going to embed a piece of secretory anal sac wall with its adapted sweat glands um, into the tissue and create a permanently festering mess. So I definitely like to get um, those anal sac uh, abscesses resolved before I contemplate surgical excision. And um, and uh, the surgery uh, uh, we've we've now got in the habit of using. Uh, there's a commercially available uh, plastic that we drop into. Um, well usually a coffee cup of hot water um, and then it's drawn up into a specially made syringe which has a, um, a catheter tip and you inject the um, the uh, bright green plastic into the anal sac after having flushed it and that um, hot plastic sets um, and the um, the heat from the plastic tends to break down some of the connective tissue um, structures behind the wall of the gland, making it easier to excise from the the um, the anal sphincter. Um, and of course, being bright fluorescent green, it's easy to dissect out because you can see it. Um, and um, 
And yes, I'm very pleased, I'm touching wood right now, to say that those uh, faecal incontinence problems that are um, sometimes reported with anal sac surgery, that hasn't been a feature of the, the, um, the procedures we've done. Yes, well, my experience has been the same as far as the surgical ones. Every, although every single client where I have a um, a dog that I want to take to surgery to remove an anal gland or anal anal sacs, um, I do walk them through the process of of saying that potentially this um, could cause um, incontinence in your dog, and then I would say, but of all the anal gland surgeries I've done over the years, um, Touchwood, I've never had one that um, has resulted in that. So despite what um, was drummed into us um, at, at, at vet school at, at, um, many years ago, yeah, I've, I've, I've never had an issue where it has been a problem, but I do warn every every single client that that might be the case, um, but I've yet to had a problem with that. Um, I must admit with the last um, few few anal, anal sac um, abscesses that um, I've seen over the last few months. And, yeah, we probably see one uh, over the last few months. We probably saw two or three a month. Um, um, I just hit them really hard with systemic non-steroidals and, and antibiotics um, for t- um, two to three weeks um, with the aim of getting them back in um, after that period and, and then taking them to surgery. But remarkably, probably... 80 or 90 percent of them um, resolved without um, taking them to surgery and 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 they're still doing fine so i, I do find really, that that's that's really interesting and it's uh, it's really interesting because over that same time we've probably we've really ramped up our um our use of apoquel for our atopic dogs we've just been that'll be a a, a review for a future podcast um but yes. we've um I, I would definitely say that um that i could report similar numbers i think where we've um had an itchy dog and finally we've got this horrible anal sac problem and we convince the people that uh that we're going to um solve two problems with one uh, one process, and we get them on to Apoquel. We've we've had, um, yeah, well, well over eighty percent of them resolve and not require uh, further expression or um, contemplation of surgery. Ah, well, there you go. Similar as usual um, with with our results. Um, so I think the take home mes- message for the um, those of us seeing lots of anal gland disease is. Um, uh, make sure we cover them with lots of um, pain relief there don't be afraid of taking them to surgery if if they need to go to surgery um, and um, make sure you warn the clients that something that we might get that incontinence although I think it's rare and I don't think of um, maybe you could comment on this mark too be- before we finish up I-, I don't think I know of any of my colleagues um, where I've discussed anal sac surgery um, with them who have had one one case of um, incontinence in a dog after the anal sac um, surgery. Do you know any? I know of one. Just a single case um, uh, came to us for um, help managing the problem after it uh, was it was an anal sac surgery that um, uh, that triggered it. So it actually does occur. But as you said, um, I think. Um, I think it's one of those things you've got to make your clients uh, aware of, um, but it, the the um, the it it probably the risk of it um, is of similar order to the risks of um, the animal having complications under anaesthetic. It's not a reason not to go ahead and do it. 
Yes, yes. I mean, great top, great topic, Mark. I think it's good if we um, select some um, just common common issues that we see in our dogs and cats as far as a topic um, for us to discuss on um, the Vet Gurus podcast. So the only way we will know what topics to discuss that you have out there is to email us, vetgurus at gmail.com. And um, looks like we've come to the end again, Mark. The, the music has kicked in um, and... I think it's time to say thanks for listening and we will see you all next week. Bye from the Vet Gurus.